0: in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that's right. There's a lot that we can think and say about God, but we've got to make sure that we say the right things and view God from the right vantage point. We've talked in times past about Moses' desire to see God's glory, and you remember what God does on that occasion. He doesn't reveal his fullness and glory to Moses, but instead he tells Moses who he is. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love, full of goodness and truth. He says, I won't by any means acquit the guilty, but I reward iniquity. On fathers and on the children's father's children to the third and fourth generations, showing steadfast love to those who love me. And that passage at the heart of the Old Testament in Exodus 34, six and seven is quoted at length throughout the Old Testament. Whenever people want to get to the heart of God in the Hebrew Bible, they quote that passage. God's self-revelation about himself and says, this is who God is. You read a lot of passages from prophets and poets in the Old Testament, and it all drives back to that famous passage in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because in the end, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think what. Exodus 34, six and seven is to the Old Testament. There are countless passages like that in Philippians chapter four in the New Testament. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Philippians chapter four. It's a popular chapter. And I don't know if you mark it right in your Bible, but I'm assuming if you do, when you get to Philippians chapter four, there'll be a lot of verses that are highlighted, a lot of verses that are underlined. Many of the verses Caden read for us just a moment ago are among some of Bible students favorite verses about God. And they tell us much about him. Throughout the book of Philippians, you remember Paul has been driving home this point that the Philippians, in order to maintain Christian joy, have to serve God properly. And so Philippians 1:27, he says, only let your manner of life be that which is in line with the gospel, that whether I come see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast with one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Or Philippians two in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Or in chapter three in verse 14, Paul says, I'm striving for the upward call, which is in Christ Jesus. You read through the book of Philippians and what becomes apparent is Christians have a high responsibility toward God. But all of that would be in vain if Paul didn't tell us what he tells us in Philippians chapter four. Now, many of the verses we're going to look at tonight, you know them. You already know these verses. They're in your memory catalog as far as Bible study is concerned. But tonight, what I hope we see is that these verses we've memorized, highlighted, underlined, posted and shared say far more about the God we serve than they do about us. Everything that Paul has said so far in the first three chapters hinges on us having a proper view of who God is. Paul says serve God with all of your might, but remember the God you serve and how he operates in and throughout the world. This is important. When you read the book, the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, there's nobody else like Paul. Nobody read more, wrote more, traveled more and suffered more and did more for the cause of Christ. It's dizzying to read about all the things that he did. And yet all of that is misleading. If we fail to realize that everything Paul did, he did in view of what we're going to talk about tonight and his knowledge of the God that we serve. If you don't know God, God, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, you'll become frustrated You'll rust out or you'll burn out or you'll give up altogether. And so tucked within some of our favorite verses in the book of Philippians in chapter four, Paul says, this is your God. The last chapter of Philippians chapter four has 23 verses and 16 times directly or indirectly. God, Paul says something about God, Christ or a combination of the terms. That is to say, as he's wrapping up his thoughts, this major idea springs forth. And that is, I really want you to know that you have to work for God. But remember the God that you work for. Tonight, let's just notice five of these ways that we should appreciate the God that we serve. What does Paul say in these verses that helps us in our service to our king? Here's number one. Paul says the God that we serve is near. You know, this starts on the first page of the Bible, really the first two chapters. The Bible describes God as being different from the pagan gods of the ancient Near East and even the idolatrous gods of the Greco-Roman world. Gods in that culture, as they were typically described, were too good to deal with humanity. They wouldn't get their hands dirty. But Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says that God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. More than that, God has made us in his image. Genesis 1:26 and 27. God's come close. God has come down and gotten involved in our world. But as quickly as you read those words, Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world. And a God that previously walked with his people in the cool of the day, Genesis three and verse eight. There's now this great separation because of our sin and unholiness. Isaiah says it this way. Behold, the Lord's hand isn't shortened that it can't save. His ear isn't heavy or overburdened that he can't hear. But your sins and your iniquities have separated you from your God. And yet when Jesus comes into the world, this is a game changer. It changes everything. And so John 1 and verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus put on human flesh and blood and came to our world, God came near to us in a way that previous generations have never known and could never know. And in Philippians 4, Paul says God's near. Would you notice in the text three times in three different ways, Paul says God's near. Notice Philippians 4 and verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Notice Philippians four in verse nine. He says those things you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And God, the God of peace will be with you. It's not just that God shows up. Paul says he doesn't come empty handed. He comes bringing peace. And then in verse 23 of Philippians chapter four, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God is present with his people. This is an idea throughout the New Testament. God is near us or at hand. James five and verse eight. The God of peace is with you. Romans 15 and verse 33 and his grace will strengthen, comfort and establish you. First Peter, chapter five and verse 10. Paul says your God is near and close. As far as application goes, there are at least two that we can make. Number one, God is near. That means Jesus is near or could be coming soon. That's what Paul could mean in Philippians four and verse five. And Jesus says that day and that hour, no man knows not even the angels in heaven, but the father only. Mark 13, 32. Jesus is nearer to coming back now than he's ever been before. And yet there's another aspect in which God is near to us, and that is that he dwells within us as his people. You who were once far off are now brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2:13. Nobody in the history of the world has ever been that close to God or had it has it as good as we do as New Testament Christians. And so Paul says the God you serve. Remember that he's close. Remember that God is near. I don't know if you've been to a concert or a game before you know the best seats. I mean, if you go to a concert or to a game, football, basketball, you name it, just think about it. Really, everybody sees the same thing, true or false. Everybody does. If you go to a concert, everybody hears the same music. Everybody, it doesn't matter where you sit. And yet, the best and most coveted seats are where? In the splash zone. Church is obviously not a concert or a game. Notice the three empty pews on the front row. People want to be close. They want to be right up on the action. For some reason, it enhances the human experience because people say I'm right up on the action. I'm right there where things are taking place. Yes, everybody's experiencing it, but I'm doing it to a greater and more intimate degree. And yet there's something even better than that. If you were given backstage passes where you could go in and actually talk to the person that was gonna be playing in the game or the individuals that are gonna be performing, that'd be even better than the seats. You get to know them in a way that nobody else in all the stands would. Paul says, Christians, you have backstage passes. In him we live and move and have our very being. We're his offspring, as your own poets have said. Where God's near to us and we can find him if we feel after him and search for him. Acts 17 and verse 27. Nobody has it any better because God has chosen to come near to us. This is both a cause for rejoicing and for caution. It's a word of caution to Christians to say, Live the right way. Be God's person because God is not far off and aloof. Don't be like the foolish man in the parable in Matthew 24 who thought his master was gone away on a long journey and began to mistreat the servants. And his master will come and beat him, chop him into pieces and feed him to the adversaries. Remember, God's near. But it's also a cause for rejoicing because you don't do life alone. At least you don't have to. He won't abandon us or forsake us because he's with us. Hebrews 13 and verse five. And Paul says, The God that we serve is near. If you still have your Bible open, notice Philippians 4 and all of the imperatives that Paul gives. This reality fuses everything else that Paul says. The reality that God is near fuels the rejoicing that he mentions in verse 4. It helps us to live the reasonable way that he mentions in chapter 4 and verse 5. It is the fuel for the prayers in verse six and the peace that he supplies in verse seven. It's a part of the good things that we're to think in verse eight and all of the things that he says we're to do in verse nine. All of those things are fueled by this one grand reality. The God that you serve, he's near and close to you. The God we serve is near. This is true. It's always been. But it's for us in a different light. You know, people in the Old Testament, they knew about God's coming and being involved in our world, but they didn't know it like we do. Moses had the instructions. They built the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and verse 34 says his glory came and filled the temple. But only certain people could get that close to God. Only the priests, those from the tribe of Levi, not anybody else. When Solomon was done constructing the temple, 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, God's glory and clouds ushered in and filled the temple with his glory. And God was present there in the temple, but not everybody was able to experience that. And then you get to the new covenant. And the Bible says that we as Christians collectively and individually are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 316, 1 Corinthians 619. And God comes in and every one of us can be as close to God as we desire. The distance is our problem, not his. You draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Every single time you take a step closer to God, every single time he takes one step closer to you. God is near. James 4 and verse 8. You draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And before Paul gets to any dues, Any duty. He says, I want you to know something about God. He's close. Here's number two. The God we serve strengthens us. Now, Philippians 4.13 is the most famous verse in this chapter and probably in the book. In 2019, it was in the top 10 verses on the YouVersion Bible app that had been highlighted or shared on social media platforms. It's a famous verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Most people know this verse and we focus on this verse and for good reason, but for a long time, my focus was normally on the all things. What does that mean? Paul says I can do all things, but in focusing on that first part, we forget what Paul's telling us on the back end of this verse and that is through him or through Christ who strengthens me the things that God would have his people to do. He always equips us to be in to ensure that we can accomplish them. The God we serve strengthens us and equips us to do the things that he would have us to do. You know how some people view the Bible. They view the Bible simply as a list of do's and don'ts. The doers go to heaven and those who don't. Well, they go to hell. And that's about it. And many people view Christianity that way. Listen, if you're just by nature, strong, self-disciplined, assertive and a go-getter. Well, this works well for you because all you've got to do is obey the gospel and you'll have enough vigor and stamina and spiritual whereabouts to just push through. If that's not your lot, well, then shame on you. But what if that's not the whole story? What if it's not learn it and earn it? But what if it's faith it till you make it? You just press through by faith all the while remembering this reality. The God we serve supplies the strength that we need to do the things that he commands us to do. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8 and verse 10. Stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. You're strengthened according to his glorious might, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 11. Paul says the God we serve, he strengthens us to do what he would have us to do. Notice this comes on the heels, Philippians 4, 13, right there in the context, verse 10, verse 11 and verse 12. Paul was talking previously about being able to be content in all circumstances. In verse 11, he says, I've learned in every circumstance to be content with my lot. I know how to both abound and to suffer need. And he's able to do it because God supplies everything that Paul needs. And guess what? He strengthens us in that same way. God strengthens his people and gives us the equipment to do what he would have us to do. This means whatever you accomplish for God, whatever we accomplish for God, to his good and glory, he deserves the credit because he's given us the power to do it. It's because of what he's done. Jesus says in John 15 and verse five, without me, you can do nothing. But the obvious question in response to that is, what about with him? What can we do with him? We can do all things. 2018 Serena Williams lost the US Open now Serena had lost before she's probably one more in her career than she lost but this time she lost but that's not what made the headlines she made headlines because she was accused of cheating in the match and that's what distracted her she said throughout the duration of the match in tennis there's a rule that says coaches cannot communicate with players whatsoever throughout the entirety of the match this includes warm warm ups. Nothing audible, nothing visual, there can be no communication. You can train them, but then once they get there for the match, it's all up to them. Any perceived ounce of communication will result in a player being penalized. As a result, Serena says, my coach and I, we don't have any kind of signals. He didn't give me anything. We don't do that. And she was frustrated the rest of the match and she lost. But that's tennis. Christians aren't tennis players. It's not the case that God coaches us up, baptizes us in the water, and says, "Okay, I don't operate in your life anymore. It's all on you. You go out and do everything I've commanded you to do. No, there is communication. There is a relationship between us and God and everything that God wants us to do. He doesn't say, well, you just go out and give it your best shot. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this helps us with the all things. What are the all things? Everything within the will of God. Every single thing in the Bible that you read about that God wants you to do, he's going to supply the strength for you to do it. God doesn't send us out on our own in any endeavor. And this is a gut check for every Christian individually and us as a congregation collectively. Because the question we should be posing is this, as we think about accomplishing great things for God, have we set our sights in our lives as individuals and as a congregation too low? Do we sometimes think to ourselves, well, we probably just ought to be moderate because, you know, the last thing we would want to do is just kind of oversell ourselves and maybe try to bite off more than we could chew. And Paul's saying you can do everything. That God commands you through Christ that gives you strength. What does that mean? It means we can evangelize Warren County just like we desire. We can share the gospel with friends and neighbors because Christ is going to strengthen us to do it. It means we can read the Bible, study his word and learn him not perfectly, but thoroughly. It means we can pray to God and raise up children to be faithful soldiers that are shot out as arrows into a world that desperately needs to hear the good news. We can do it. It's not because of us, but because of him and through him. And we have to have no doubts about that, because he's the one that makes us sufficient for these things. Second Corinthians three, five and six. Paul says, "We're your servants, for Jesus' sake it's through Christ that we can accomplish the things that we desire to do." And He's commanded us to do it. God strengthens us in His service to accomplish His will. The God we serve is the one that makes us strong. And so if we don't see ourselves as strong, what is that saying about our relationship to God? Hold your hand in Philippians four and go one book up. Go to Ephesians chapter three. And we know this verse about what it teaches us about God. But notice how what God's able to do is connected to us as his people. Ephesians chapter three, Paul breaks out into this prayer of praise near the end. And in verse 20, he says, now unto him, that's God who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can ask or even think. And that's normally where we stop, but that's not where Paul stops. God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or even think. And then Paul says, according to the power at work within us, what does that mean? It means this, the God that can do anything, you have that power on your side. The God that can do above whatever we ask or even think, Paul says that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is on your side and in your life. The God we serve is able to strengthen us. And so as we think about all the things God would have us to do, sometimes we get overwhelmed and say, hey, how can we do all of those things? Well, the good news is we don't have to do it all today, but the better news is we don't have to do any of it alone. You see, in a chapter and in a book where Paul emphasizes Christian responsibility, he makes sure to emphasize also God's involvement in our lives. Because if we fail to see that, if we think this is just tennis, God trains us up and sends us out. There's no more miraculous intervention in the world. And so Christians are just on their own. It'll lead to frustration. It'll lead to burnout and it'll lead to give out. Who is God? The God that strengthens us to do his will. Now, here's number three. The God we serve, he can be pleased. Paul talks about a contribution that he received from the Philippians. And this starts in chapter four and verse 15. And Paul says, you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving. But you only even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my necessity, not that I desire the gift, but I desire the fruit that may abound to your account. And here he is in verse 18. He says, I've received all of it from Epaphras. And he says, the gift you gave me was a sacrifice, a a sacrifice acceptable and well pleasing to God. The God we serve. Number one, Paul says he's near. Number two, he strengthens. But here it is. Number three, the God we serve can be pleased. Now, in this section, Paul's a traveling preacher, and he lives by either working, making tents on his own or by the freewill contributions of churches. The Philippians are one of those churches that gathered up a collection and sent it to Paul. And so in Philippians 4, 15 down through 18, Paul's talking about that collection. And he says to the Philippians, I've received it, the money you gave, and it's been a blessing to my life. But he says more than that, this was just a good little benevolent contribution. Paul says, He uses Old Testament sacrificial language in verse 18, and he says, the gift you gave was actually a sweet aroma that went up and it was well pleasing to God. He says about their gift, and we could say more about this in relation to how we ought to view our giving. But in the end, Paul says your sacrifice, your contribution, God saw it. God smelled it. God says, I'm pleased with it. The God we serve can be pleased. You know, if this is all we could say tonight, it lifts heavy burdens off many of God's people. Do you know that the God you serve can be pleased and can be satisfied? I've known people that have had domineering fathers, you know, the type. hold the flashlight. You can never hold it in the right place. Clean your room It's never clean enough. I worked for a man. It didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter what I did. He had laser vision. He would always find a fault. You know what it's like to be in that situation no matter what you do. You can't make this person happy. You're never going to get it right. You've always missed the spot. You've always left something undone. You know the fear and the trepidation that follows people in that circumstance. And our problem is we transfer that same kind of thinking onto God and we live our entire Christian lives crippled by the fear that we might let him down and fail him because in the end, he's a hard taskmaster which can't be pleased. And Paul burst this verse on us in Philippians 4.18. He says, Philippians, you get and that was great but more than that God was pleased with it you can run the references on this word in the Greek and the New Testament and what you find is it's more than just this it's all over the place I'm going to quote some of the verses to you. You can go back and read them or maybe follow along and write these in. But turn your Bible to Colossians chapter three and notice how many times in the New Testament God will say, I want you to do this through Paul or some other inspired spokesman. And he'll quickly follow that up with, hey, if you do this, God will be pleased. So Colossians chapter three, Paul's giving these house rules. And then in verse 20, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And we sometimes leave this part off. But Paul says this is well pleasing to him. Children, obey your parents, because when you do, it's well pleasing to God. That matters. Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, and notice verse 16, Hebrews 13, 16. The Hebrew writer says, hey, do good and don't forget to share, because with these types of sacrifices, God is well pleased. He says God equips you in Hebrews 13 and verse 21 to do his will and work that which is pleasing in his sight. And twice in Romans 12, 1 and two, God is described as the one who we serve and our bodies as a living sacrifice is acceptable. They're acceptable to him. Christian, the God you and I serve, he can be pleased with us. He can look down on our efforts and smile on the things that we do. He can be satisfied and pleased with us. I don't know how many times in your life you feel like your strides in the effort of righteousness ultimately amount to nothing. You see other people doing so much more. I don't know how many times Christians have said to me, maybe people have said this kind of thing to you, too. We'll talk about Christian service. We'll preach a sermon about duty and somebody will say, well, you know what? We can never do enough. That's not true. God never says that. Well, you can never do enough. What if it's the case that God doesn't want to add more onto our plates, but what if he just wants us to manage the plates we already have? What if God right now is satisfied with the efforts and strides you're making in Jesus and the God you serve can be pleased? That would revolutionize your Christian service and mine if we really believed it. What if God's not out to add one more thing onto you or see you do one more thing? But just like he told the church at Thyatira in Revelation 224, what if he says on you I'm placing no other burden." You say, my life's busy. Right now, I can only read one chapter of the Bible a day. I wish I could do as much as other people. What if he's pleased? You say, I'm praying as much as I can. And you know what? I'm busy. And in between breaks and changing diapers, I'm communicating with the Lord. I could do more. But what if he's pleased? What if you personally can't do every Bible study and baptize everybody but the one person you're working on, whether they're already a Christian or somebody you're trying to help to remain faithful, you say, I wish I was doing more. But what if with those efforts, God's already pleased with you. Imagine being a Christian in the church at Philippi. You throw your two denarii in the plate. Epaphras takes the gift to Paul. You saw rich Lydia in the Philippian jailer with his good job. They gave much more. The letter comes back. Somebody stands up, reads the book of Philippians. You thought you just threw in two small coins. And Paul says, with your sacrifice, God was well pleased. Who has despised the day of small things? Zechariah 4 and verse 10. God has not. We serve a God that can be pleased with our efforts. And when we learn that, it doesn't make us want to do less. This isn't an argument for biblical minimalism. It invigorates us to do far more. Twice in Jesus's life, heaven breaks its silence. In his baptism, Matthew 3:17, And on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 and verse 5. And you remember what God says. This is my beloved son in whom I'm what? well pleased. And nobody in the world who believes the Bible struggles to believe that reality. Of course, he's pleased with Jesus. He did everything right. John eight twenty nine. His sacrifice was the sacrifice by which God forgave everybody's sins under the old covenant and under the new. His sacrifice was the answer. Of course, God's pleased with Jesus, but not with me. But the New Testament is saying, don't you see that if you're in Christ, you can insert your name there as well. You are my beloved son or daughter. And in you, I am well pleased. It's not because you've done everything right, but because he has. I don't know how many people I've studied the Bible with. They got one foot in the baptistry and one foot out and they say things like this. I need to obey the gospel. I know I'm a sinner. And if I die, I go to hell right now. It's not an intellectual issue. Their problem is this. When I obey the gospel, I will probably disappoint him. I may not do it all right. And my response is always you won't, but he will and he can be pleased. God can be satisfied with us. And it can encourage the way we live. The famous writer Edgar Allan Poe, famous poet, was known as the man who never smiled. The best you get is this kind of cheapish smirk that he's wearing on his face in this picture. It's the best he can do. He's been known as the master of the mean mug. He's the one that just could never smile and get anything across. You just look him up and these are the kind of pictures you find. I'm not telling you tonight that you can Google God, but if you could, you would see a picture of your God smiling. I don't know who's the grouchiest dude, you know, or dudette. I guess girls can be grouchy, too. Listen, they don't depict God. You don't serve a grumpy God. You serve a good God. He's not grouchy, but he's gracious. Zephaniah 317 says he'll quiet you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. Why would he do something like that? Because he's pleased. I don't know if we view God as gritting his teeth and merely putting up with us. But Micah 6 and verse Micah 7 and verse 18 says he does not retain his anger forever. God's most natural reflex is to look on humanity and be satisfied and smile. And Paul says, you've got a lot to do for God, but remember that the God you're doing it for, he can be pleased. He doesn't say, well, okay, you have given your best effort. I guess that's all right. I've seen better. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, really, is that the best you can do? He sees you putting your all in, giving your effort and more than just accepting it and tolerating it. Paul says you should smile because you can put a smile on his face. And that makes all the difference. Here's number four. The God we serve supplies our needs. Philippians 419. You know this one. This is another one. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, which is in Christ Jesus. The God we serve is close to us. The God we serve is a God that will strengthen us. And the God we serve can be pleased. But here's the fourth one. God supplies all of your needs. Now, he had done this for Paul through the Philippians, through the money that they gave. But Paul wanted them to know, hey, it's not just about me. God supplies everybody's needs that serves him. It's not just me. I'm glad you all gave for my needs, but God will supply all of your needs as well. Is who he is. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, Paul's talking about giving. He says God loves a cheerful giver. But then in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. So that you always having all sufficiency and all things will abound to every good work. What does that mean? It means that you give benevolently and richly to God and God will see to it that you always have everything you need. And he's even kind enough to throw in a few wants on occasion. The God we serve supplies all of our needs. It means Christians like no good thing. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. It means that you can bank on the God we serve to continually supply us and equip us and his his cup never runs empty as he continues to pour blessings into our lives. Look at Psalm 37. Look at Psalm 37 and notice what David says as a cross reference to what Paul writes in Philippians 4:19. Psalm 37 and verse 25, because there are some people tonight probably wondering if they've got enough in the tank to serve God. And sometimes our fear and our worry about our earthly circumstances actually cripples our service to God. Listen, I've got no time to think about serving the king. I don't even have the necessities to get through life. I'm not sure that God's going to carry me through with the things I need to get it done. In Psalm 37 and verse 25, David writes one of the most shocking verses in all of the Bible. And it actually puts God on trial and puts him to the test. Psalm 37, 25, David says, I've been young. And now I'm old. David surveys his whole life. And he says, yet I've never seen the righteous abandoned nor his seed begging for bread. David says, I've seen a lot of things. I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen God disappoint or let his people down. He's never in over his head. He never promises more than he can deliver. Jesus says twice in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6:8, Matthew 6:32. God knows what you need before you ask. Because the God we serve, He's just in the business of supplying our needs. It's what He does. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and with Him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. It means God's been supplying your needs up to this point, and you can bank on it and count on it. He'll supply them in the future. It's just the way that He operates. And as you serve God, you don't have to hold back or let your mind be distracted by all of the things that you feel like you won't have. You can trust Him, Paul says. He will supply. Because that's who he is. He pours into his people benevolently so that we can serve him freely. The God we serve is a God that supplies our needs. But this isn't just about physical things. Food, shelter and clothing, of course. But there's also the spiritual. In Ephesians one, Paul lists the catalog of spiritual blessings we have in Christ. There's election. Ephesians one, four. Adoption into the family. Ephesians one, five. He makes us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1:6. the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1:7. the Holy Spirit in our lives as a down payment on the glory to come. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Those that serve him like no good thing. Paul says God will supply all your needs and he does it according to his riches and glory, which is in Christ Jesus. The Christian can serve God faithfully so long as he or she remembers the God I serve. He really does have my bag. He really does pour into my life and bless me with every good thing. And I can breathe a deep sigh of relief because while the world is frantic and fearful and worried, I can rest in confidence that he supplied my needs spiritually. But he also does that physically. And because of that, I can throw myself fully into his work. How does God do this? Here are a few ways. Sometimes God does this through his servants. Other Christians, God puts people in your life to bless you in ways you can't imagine. Paul was afraid in Corinth because they were thinking about killing him. And God says, Acts 18, 9 and 10. Paul, don't be afraid. I have much people in this city. No harm will come to you. Sometimes God pours into your life. He puts the right people around you at the right time who are his people and his resources are in their hands so that they can bless your life. But sometimes God does this through strangers. Paul, you will go to Rome and God made the Romans pay for it. Paul went all the way scot free. I don't think it was a Royal Caribbean cruise in Acts 27, but Paul got there free. God used the Romans to get Paul exactly where he wanted him so that Paul could preach the gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire. And he made the Romans foot the bill. God can supply our needs through strangers. They don't have to know God. He owns the whole world. Psalm 24 and verse one. He can do it through his indescribable providence. How many times in your life have you said this or has this been the case? I don't know how it happened. It just worked out. How does that happen? It's because God works all things together for good to them that love him him and that are the called according to his purpose. He doesn't have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs. He just gets us there because the God we serve, he supplies our needs. Here's the last one. As Paul breaks out in praise after he thinks about all that God has done, the God we serve is worthy of glory. He says to God, our father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The God we serve is worthy of glory. It's what Isaiah says the seraphim cried in Isaiah 6 and verse 3. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In Revelation 5, 12, and 13, Jesus is described as being worthy of glory, honor, and praise. And the God we serve is worthy of it. Now, when you read the New Testament, a lot of times you read the word glory. It's a Greek word doxa, and it can mean several things. Sometimes glory in the Bible just means brightness or radiance. And God is glorious, and there's nothing you can do about that. So when Paul says, give God glory, you don't give God any more brightness or glory or radiance than he already has. He just is that he didn't ask for our permission to be that he just is that. But what about these passages when Paul ascribes glory to God? Sometimes in the New Testament, the word glory means worth or estimation or value. Paul is saying, when you think about God, make sure that you put him in the right category with the right price tag, because the God we serve is worthy of glory. It's like your family having a yard sale and somebody not knowing any better. Maybe a child in the family comes up and they say, oh, this is an old dusty book. We ought to throw this out there for a dollar. And it's the family album. And you say that can't go out there. Oh, this old raggedy watch, it can go for two dollars. No, that's my granddaddy's watch. You don't know the value of it, but it's worth a lot more than the average eye can give it in its estimation. And Paul says, when you think about God, make sure that you give him his glory because he's do it and he's worth it. The God we serve is worthy of glory. It means every time you sing to him, you sing your head off because you realize he's not like us. He's different. His glory is higher than the heavens and he's worthy of it. To God be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Paul wants us to focus on. Hedonism is the idea that the lives that we live, you don't have to be a Christian. they are hedonists in the world and their view is everything in life is about pleasure. And John Piper, I don't know when he started writing about this, but maybe in the 80s or 90s, he started writing about what he called Christian hedonism. And what Christian hedonism is, is it's this idea that God's greatest desire, which is to be glorified, and the human's greatest desire, which is to be happy, are ultimately one and the same thing. Piper says in the end God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him God gets the most glory from us when our true happiness and our true self-worth comes from him Those two things are one and the same Once you and I realize that we are put here to glorify God and glorifying him becomes our chief aim and our chief virtue It's at that moment that we're Christian hedonists and the world can't take our joy And we finally realize what we're made for and who we're made for And we give God the glory that he's due You see, Paul says the God we serve is worthy of glory. Don't ever cheapen him. Don't ever cheat him of it. Give it all to him and ascribe it to him. But there's something better. As we close, turn your Bible to Romans chapter 8. This morning we looked at verse 18 and what it teaches us about the fact that the sufferings of this present time isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you think about all this greatness and glory and grandeur, so much so that Moses couldn't come near to see it or he would die. But Paul says, I've got great news for you. Because God is glorious and because God is great and because God is near. Nobody gets this close to God without getting some of the glory themselves. And so Romans 8 and verse 17, Paul says, if we're sons, then we're also heirs, heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, we will also be what glorified together with him. As we come into God's presence, our value increases and we become everything that God would have us to be image bearers that also share in his glory. You know, the Christian life is one of duty. We've been saved to serve. And Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, drives at this point. I want you to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Strain like a runner toward the finish line in such a way that you lay hold on the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But Tozer is right. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if you think, if I think, I'm serving a taskmaster which can't be pleased. A God far off and disconnected from my life. A God that's given me a laundry list of things to do but wants me to accomplish it in my own strength. And a God who in the end is just pretty average and not worthy of glory. My service will reflect the same. Low views of God don't lead to high views of service. But what if we really drink deeply tonight from Philippians chapter 4? And what if he's right up on us and in our lives? And what if everything God wants you to do, God equips you to do? What if God can be pleased? What if just being a faithful mom or dad or co-worker or caretaker is really enough? And he smiles on that. And as you have time and opportunity, you can broaden your horizons and do more. But what if he's pleased with your station in life right now and supplying all of your needs? And as he supplies them, you continue to attribute glory to him. What if that's the God we're serving? If it is. And I'm arguing tonight that it is. It'll change the way that we live our lives and ultimately the way that we serve him. Paul says that Christian service begins with responding to the gospel of grace that Jesus extends to us in Christ. Jesus is the son of God. And if you believe that, you can turn from your sins, confess your faith in him and be immersed to have your sins forgiven. And when you from the waters of baptism, he'll say the same thing to you that he said about his son when he did the same. This is now my beloved son or daughter and him I'm well pleased. If you need to do that tonight, we'd be happy to be witnesses to that or to help you in your endeavor to obey the gospel. If you have done it and we can pray with you or pray for you, God will strengthen. God will supply. And most often he does it through his people. Let us help you tonight while we stand and while we sing.